Welcome to Science's Soundwaves. I'm Ishtanetra Siva and I will be our host for today. Biological molecules play pivotal roles in our body, from growth to respiration. There are numerous classes of these molecules and all of them have important tasks, though this is an area that is still under a lot of research for certain subsets of molecules. In addition to their intrinsic properties and roles in the human body, some classes of biological molecules are being used for research and development purposes, particularly in therapeutic areas such as immunotherapies. Today, we are eager to invite Ms. Stephanie Smeliansky, currently a PhD candidate at the Massachusetts Institute for Technology. In today's episode, Ms. Smeliansky will be talking about microproteins, the role of glycans in immunotherapy, and the importance of scientific communication for the empowerment of our public. Ms. Smeliansky's research has centered around biochemistry, more specifically, the role of microproteins in relation to RNA, and also how glycans can be used for immunotherapies. She's also an advocate for underrepresented minorities in STEM and is passionate about scientific communication. Welcome to Scientist Soundwaves, Ms. Smeliansky. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. One of your research papers mentioned how proteogenomics and ribosome profiling has led to the discovery of new small open reading frames. What exactly are small open reading frames and how were they identified with technology such as ribosome profiling? Yeah, so to first answer this question, I'm actually going to say what an open reading frame is. An open reading frame is basically the part of a gene that is then translated into some kind of a molecule. When people were annotating the human genome or figuring out what genes there are, they were looking for open reading frames of a certain length. But as a result, they kind of ignored anything that was shorter than that. Um, so there's all these genes that we might not even know about simply because they weren't included in the original calculations and identifying genes. So small open reading frames are those open reading frames that might have gotten ignored because of their short length. Using proteomics and ribosome profiling, these two techniques look at every protein that's being made in the cell at a given time, we were able to identify different small open reading frames that produce really tiny proteins. These tiny proteins have previously not been characterized and because of previous algorithms for identifying proteins and genes, uh, we didn't even know they existed until the development of these newer technologies. Thank you, that's really interesting. And more of your research work has also focused on microproteins. So what are microproteins and what is their role in cell growth, development, and proliferation? Yeah, so as I mentioned with small open reading frames, those are uh, kind of like gene segments that are shorter than a traditional gene, which is why we didn't originally discover them. Um, as a result, any, any small open reading frame will code for a specific protein, possibly, we don't know. But these small open reading frames, if they do code for protein, they're also gonna code for a much shorter protein than a typical gene. And that's why we call them microproteins. Um, a, typical gene will a typical protein will have hundreds of amino acids, while a microprotein may have somewhere between 50 to 80 amino acids. Um, in my work, I focus on a recently discovered microprotein named Nobody. And Nobody, uh, we realize, helps, um, it helps modulate the expression of different RNAs. This is really important in, uh, in changing um, different cell states, helping with cell growth and cell division. The exact ways in which these microproteins affect cells is not known, but in the case of nobody, we're able to show how a different checkpoint inhibitors during the cell life cycle are, um, affect how nobody basically exerts this effect on RNA translation into proteins. So the idea is that many of these microproteins, while previously they haven't been discovered or characterized, might actually play really crucial roles at different points of the cell life cycle in um, 
regulating growth, development, and proliferation, which might have applications to many human diseases. Though these applications are really down the line and we don't really know uh, what those results might look like. And that was really interesting. And moving on forth to some of the research conducted at Kiesling Lab, where you work as a graduate research assistant. That focuses on harnessing glycans in immunotherapy, as well as their fundamental interactions. So why exactly are glycans such an attractive area of research in the field of therapeutics? Yeah, so glycans might sound familiar, might sound like glucose, or another way to say glycans is carbohydrates, um, which are just like really long giant sugars. And to kind of begin, uh, one of our favorite things to say in the Kiesling lab is everything's covered in a carbohydrate coat. So all the cells in your body, bacteria, viruses, they're all covered in different carbohydrates. And what makes these carbohydrates unique is that different cells have different carbohydrates. So for example, when we talk about blood types, O, A, A, B, those are um, different types of cells covered with different types of carbohydrates. And carbohydrates help you distinguish cell from non-self. Your cells will have a very specific carbohydrate coat, while bacteria is gonna have a very different one and the virus is gonna have a very different one. And each bacterial species is gonna have different ones between different humans, there's gonna be small uh, permutations and changes. So as a result, because the glycan coat is so unique to every individual species, it can be a really powerful tool for developing different vaccines because you're developing a vaccine that only targets the one thing. Um, it's also an attractive uh, research field for therapeutics, not just for immunotherapy, but also for targeting certain antibiotics, for example. If you can recognize the glycan coat of a bacteria, you can target an antibiotic directly to it. Um, so that's also an active area of research in our lab. And currently with the coronavirus pandemic impacting every aspect of our lives, we can see how important the role of vaccines is in our society. Are there any restrictions to using glycans in the field of vaccines? And if there are, are there any potential ways to overcome these barriers? Yeah, so there are actually a lot of issues with using glycans in the field vaccines, and that's why they haven't been the most common vaccines on the market so far. For example, the majority of the vaccines we talk about are targeting different protein antigens. With the coronavirus, the current uh, mRNA vaccines help produce the spike protein, so your body develops antibodies to the spike protein. A lot of other vaccines that have been developed also do something similar, where they train your body to develop antibodies towards a certain protein. Um, it would be really awesome to develop antibodies towards a glycan because, like I said, glycans are so unique to individual species. Even COVID has different glycans on the surface. The challenge of making vaccines that are based on a glycan antibody response is that glycans are weakly immunogenic. That means they don't stimulate your immune system uh, with the same strength as, say, a protein um, or a full bacteria would. So while your body might be able to distinguish the carbohydrate and recognize that it's foreign, it probably won't be able to mount a really strong immune response simply off the basis of a carbohydrate. And then it's really hard to develop antibodies that would target those carbohydrates. So this is an active area of research right now. People are really trying to figure out how to use glycans to make these vaccines because of their specificity. One of the ways in which our lab has been working on it is we've been working on different ways that we can have the glycan uh, be targeted to cells, but then include other immunogenic components in the, in the scaffold that we're using for the vaccine. Our lab mostly uses different nanoparticles or polymers as targeting agents for the vaccine. And in addition to presenting certain glycans that might be present in different bacteria, for example, we're also presenting uh, different 
immune stimulators, such as agonists of TLR receptors, which are kind of like danger receptors for your body. When TLR receptors send some kind of a specific molecular signal, they're like, oh, this is dangerous and we need to inform the rest of the cells in the body. So we're trying to target glycan vaccines using these other strategies that affect other receptors so that hopefully you kind of get this synergistic effect between two different types of mechanisms or three or more. That was really fascinating. And it's really interesting to see the different types that of the different types of approaches that are being taken in the lab too. And additionally, you've been involved in many movements that advocate for the representation of underrepresented minorities in STEM, such as the hashtags shut down STEM and women in innovation and STEM at database at MIT. To you, what is the significance of these movements and what are their primary benefits? I think science for a very long time has been dominated by old white men, to put it very bluntly. I think when people think of a scientist, they probably think of a gray-haired man with glasses and a lab coat, but that's not what science looks like anymore. And that's not how I want science to look like in the future. Science is becoming increasingly diverse, but it's not diverse enough. It is not, the current scientific community is not representative of the total population. And even in the ways that science is becoming diverse, it's not necessarily becoming a welcoming environment for people for diverse identities. And I firmly believe that the best science is done when there's a diversity of people in the room because people bring different backgrounds, different ideas to the table. And that's when you have the best discussions and uh, the best scientific breakthroughs. So in addition to a lot of my research, I've really been focused on uh, creating spaces where people can feel comfortable and really and trying to advocate for people from diverse representations. I'm not the best necessarily advocate or the strongest person out there, but I'm trying to do my part within the scientific community, um, whatever capacity I have. I've been lucky enough to be in the chemistry department at MIT, which I think has been very receptive to many of these kinds of efforts. Shutdown STEM has really focused on advocating for uh, black scientists and trying to figure out ways to create a department community that is really welcoming to, uh, to black scientists and other um, scientists of color. I've also been really active in different women's initiatives to try to create, um, to try to basically create a more welcoming um, space for women and really helping women advance in their careers. Since there are many places in the science pipeline where women are essentially weeded out really quickly. Um, and it's not on the fault of women for being weak scientists. It's on the fault of these institutions that create incredibly unfriendly and toxic environments for women and other minorities. Um, and like I said, I've been lucky to be in a department and uh, university that is really welcoming uh, to these kinds of initiatives and is really trying to like do the right thing and trying to improve the environment. But improving the environment takes a lot of work and takes work from both the institution and also from individual scientists. And that's kind of um, where I fit in, in those movements. And in addition to these wonderful movements, you've also been widely involved in scientific communication. In your opinion, how does scientific communication empower underrepresented minorities in STEM? Yeah, so I've done a lot of scientific communication work in the past. A lot of it has been focused more on science journalism, writing about different breakthroughs that people have made, different results. For one, I think that if you're working more on the science journalism side and profiling certain types of research, trying to profile research from underrepresented minorities, so female researchers, researchers of color, disabled researchers, et cetera, 
you're basically giving them a platform for their science that they might not otherwise have. And you're also giving them a platform for their science that's devoid of their identity. A lot of time when uh, a minority in science is there, you're like, oh, XYZ minority in science is a great scientist, but they can be a great scientist without those qualifiers. So profiling someone's research, I think is a really powerful way uh, to give them a bigger platform for their science. Um, I'm also really interested in telling the stories of different scientists and how different scientists got to where they are, how they're persevering right now. I think there's um, a really, like narrative plays a really important role in our society. The way we tell stories about ourselves and other people really shapes the way we think of those people and the way um, we think of the world in general. And I think in order to have a broader understanding of the individuals around us, it's important to share our own stories and provide them with the platform to share those stories. Uh, with communication, a lot of times people don't necessarily have the right words or the writing capacity to do it on their own, um, which is when it's really useful and powerful to work with um, people who do have the experience, experience in communication to help others tell those stories. That is definitely true. And it's so wonderful to see that we're beginning to see more diversity in science as well because of the work of researchers such as yourself. So thank you so much for joining us, Ms. Maliansky. It's been so wonderful having you on our podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Um, to all the young researchers out there, don't get discouraged. Uh, science is hard, but we're trying to make science a better place for everyone. And it's a lot of fun to be a scientist. Even when you spend late nights in lab, it's, it's worth it. And to the audience, if you would like to ask us a question about today's podcast or would like to offer your expertise and join us as a guest speaker, please email us at the link in the description box. Thank you for supporting our new podcast and we hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode. Stay safe and see you soon.